You guys can stand up for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is Psalm 82. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Gud kalder lederne sammen. Han anklager sit folks dommer. Hvor længe vil I dømme uretfærdigt? Hvor længe vil I favorisere de gudløse? Døm de fattige og faderløse retfærdigt. Forsvar de svage og hjælpeløse. Red de magtløse og undertrykte. Fri dem fra onde menneskers magt. I er tåbelige, uvidende og blinde. Derfor vakler verden i sin grundvold. Jeg har kaldt jer guder, for I er indsat af mig og burde handle som jeg. Men I skal dø, som de gudløse mennesker I er. Akkurat som andres landes gudløse ledere. Ja, træd frem, Gud, og døm denne verden, for du har magt over hele folkeslaget. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning, church. As you see, uh, preschoolers are getting dismissed for children's church. A reminder to parents to pick them up right before, right after you all take communion. It's been a, a bit since I've been here, so I'll reintroduce myself. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. I've been on vacation uh, a little bit. One of the things that involved was a road trip uh, to Florida and back with my family of six. Uh, we're, we're still all getting along, by the way, after 40 hours in a car. Uh, that went really well. And the, the other thing I experienced down there, by the way, is, uh, you know, the sun's pretty warm here, but Florida sun's something else. Like, that's, that was an experience, as, as, you, as you can tell, like many of us, like, we, I don't know, we've been in winter months for 11 months, and then I went to Florida for one of these weeks of summer, and like, the UV index, y'all, there is something that my skin can't handle. Like, I, I, was, I was, like, cooking down there. I remember I was telling some people, like, You look up, like, you can look up data on, like, a UV index, and around here you have, like, it's green, that's cool, you can be outside, probably no sunscreen, and yellow, you better be careful, and then it gets orange around here. On well, Florida, it goes up to red, and then there's a purple. That's a, there's, a, there's another color of purple for the UV index down there. So I, I survived that. Uh, I, think, I think I'm doing all right. I mean, I was just like, I, I just had sunscreen and clothing and hats and that sort of thing on all the time. But that's, that's what I'm coming back from, and I'm excited to also dive into some of the Psalms uh, with you all. I know you've been going through a couple sermons so far in this summer. We do summer in the Psalms. Uh, for many of the summers we've had as a church, uh, we're in the 80s because we do about 10 psalms a summer. So this is going to take us all the way to Psalm 90 for this summer. And today we're diving into a shorter psalm, Psalm 82, for this morning. So let me pray and we'll dive right into the text. Let's pray. Lord, this assembly of people are your people your children that you have adopted through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and you have poured out your spirit, your presence into their lives. You know all the burdens, the anxieties, the joys and the sorrows that they take into this place because they carry it around in their memories and onto their souls. And we want to hear you speak to our weary hearts. We want you, Lord, because of your word, to strengthen our faith, increase our hope, 
and guide our lives back into the ways of Jesus, into the ways of everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've got to check out this opening question in verse 2 of this psalm. This question is this, verse 2. How long, this is addressed to God, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? That is an intense question to ask God, is it not? It's one of those things, I looked at that question this week and just asked the question of that question. Is it biblical to ask God a question like that? God, how long are you going to be you know, in the back corner of the unjust? How long are you going to show some favoritism to the wicked? Have you ever asked God a question like that before? It's, it's a jarring question. It's not, Lord, it seems that you are doing this. It's very much more direct. Lord, you are doing this. And it's asking God a very serious question that has a very serious charge behind it. It seems like the type of question that somebody would ask who is deconstructing their faith, that they're going through some stuff, that they're having some doubts about the Lord, and that's the type of question that might come from an experience like that. And it actually, once you look at the rest of the psalm and what's going on that gives rise to this question, it actually is the type of situation that even today is the type of situation that gives rise to people sometimes getting their faith rattled and starting to maybe deconstruct. And the situation is that there are terrible and sometimes immoral leadership over God's people. That's the occasion, that's the circumstances that give rise to the question. And that's not only a question in the scriptures, but is a question that many people that are involved in church life today have as a result of experiencing bad Christian leadership. So even if we admit that the average vocational or volunteer leader in a church is somebody who's there that's just trying to humbly serve the Lord, we also have many examples of folks that are not like that and people that have experienced destructive leadership within the church. We have many examples. We have examples of evangelists who build a great and wealthy empire on the back of the poor. We have church leaders with abusive leadership who create toxic ministry environments. We might have heard of, of pastors who plagiarize sermons and present it as their own. And the examples can go on and on and on. And these are examples that I have not only heard because of podcasts or reading articles from journalists, but these are examples that many people who have come to Trinity have in their own experiences and backgrounds. And maybe that is you here today. So this sermon, because of the psalm, leans into this issue and laments this issue. And this is a big topic. You could say a lot of things about a topic like this, but the psalm is eight verses long. So it gives you a picture, an angle of how to express grief over this thing and where to direct your eyes to give you hope. The psalm's not going to say everything that there is to say about this topic, but it is going to sing to us as a psalm some truth and express some lament. So let's get started at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the quote-unquote gods. The biggest interpretive question of this text is who are the gods? What does that term 
uh, referring to. And in the scriptures, this term can be used to describe not only pagan deities, that's probably the most common way uh, that term is being used, but gods is sometimes used in the Old Testament to describe angels and kings and judges and even leaders of Israel like Moses. I'm taking the understanding that this psalm is using the term gods in reference to uh, human rulers, especially because you look at verse 9 and it describes the mortality of these so-called gods. They are going to die. These are human rulers that are in view. So as verse 1 sings the truth of Scripture, it says not just looking at these human rulers, but it's looking at God who presides over everyone and everything. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. One may... One may have a supervisor that presides over a meeting at work, but God presides here over the great assembly in heaven of every angelic being and earthly ruler. He is judge of all authority and all rulers of the earth. That's the picture that's here. It's looking not only of the location of, of, of God in the great assembly above all earthly powers, but what that location communicates because of the status of who reigns there. It reminds me of an illustration that uh, a previous resident gave once when he preached here. He did some time. Um, he grew up in Minnesota, but then did some ministry experience in Nebraska, uh, and, which is, you know, south of here, and he did this sermon illustration, I think it was from the Gospels, where God talks, uh, Jesus talks about being from above, and that he has authority from above, and that, that was not just a locational uh, point, but it's something about his status, and then he says, kind of like how Minnesota is above Nebraska, not only in location, but status. And I'm surprised he kept the residency. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't fire him or anything. But I, from being from Minnesota, I'm like, that's a good point. I like that point. I drew through a lot of southern states. They're okay. But Minnesota is above those things, right? But the, the theological point of God being above in the great assembly, above in the heavenly realms, is not only the location of where he's at, but what that communicates about his status and his authority and who he is. God is the one who presides over all earthly rulers. You cannot appeal to a higher power than the Lord. God's court is higher than the Supreme Court. God's word has more authority than a presidential veto. God's rule extends longer than any monarchy. Every executive, king or queen or judge, is under the judgment and authority of God. That is the, the truth that is sung in verse 1. And so the psalm sings this affirmation of God's sovereignty which is the basis now of that question that we already read in verse 2. Let's go back to 2 and look at verses 3 and 4 as well for the context. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So the psalm sings the affirmation of God's status, but now asks this question, God, you're defending the unjust, so it seems. You're showing favoritism to those in these leadership positions that are doing wicked things. 
This is an expression of lament in the scriptures. There's a lot of psalms that the, the entire psalm is expressed this way, a song of lament. And people often express this in the psalms because they're expressing grief because lament is grounded in observing things about the world that are what they ought not to be like. There are things that God has put into place that seem to be becoming unraveled, and they're expressing in this lament grief over that. And they're looking particularly at, and this is implied here, the leaders, these gods who are doing wicked things. They are showing partiality to those who deserve to be punished, right? And God is letting this happen. If people are standing on the backs of others and you're observing that in the world, you, you want to express grief because that's not the way it ought to be. People in positions of power shouldn't use their authority and influence to get ahead in unjust and wicked ways, which is exactly what's happening. What needs to be happening, and this is the question towards God, is why are you just sitting there, Lord? The wicked need to be judged because the poor and the powerless need to be defended and rescued. That's what is going on in these verses, and that's the appeal that's being made to God in that question. Things are not the way they ought to be. So how long, Lord, are you just going to let this happen? And maybe even it seems you're actively letting this happen and participating, that you're in their corner. This is an intense question. God isn't doing anything, and it gives the appearance, according to the psalmist, that he's actually defending the unjust and being partial to the wicked. So, maybe it raises the question, did the psalmist lose his or her faith at this point? On the surface, it looks like that could be the case. But you can still ask this question both from a standpoint of belief and unbelief. The difference is that the one with unbelief actually believes this to be true about God. You are a bad, evil, wicked, unjust God. You actually favor the powerful and are against the powerless. But the one with faith knows that God is just. That's why you've got to look at that question in context. That's what verse 3 and 4 are appealing to, that, that the psalmist knows who God is, and this is the God who does defend the weak and the fatherless. This is the God who rescues the weak and the needy. He knows that about, the, about God, and since he has faith in God being just and that he does these things, he asks the question of God, what is the deal? Because this is unlike you. That's the context. The question comes from a place of faith because we know who God is and we look at the world when it's not as, as it ought to be and we're like, God, please do something about this because I know who you are and you don't like this and you have the power to do something about it. We know you and we need you. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just some type of theological principle in the head. They observe history. This is the God who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, liberated them out of that oppressive situation and set them free. Even though they were powerless under the powerful mighty hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, he delivered them. He did that on a national scale, but not only that, he's also a personal God where there's stories of, of a widow and her kid being hungry during a famine and the Lord sends a prophet to provide. That's who the psalmist knows who God is. You're the God that just not only theoretically does those things, you have done those things. So now I'm looking at these leaders who are busting the backs on those that are, they are responsible for 
and nothing is happening, Lord. So what are you going to do about it? The psalm goes on now in verses 5 through 7 to remind us about what is going to happen to these so-called leaders. Look at verses 5 to 7. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. What are these leaders and rulers really like from God's perspective? They may think that they know so much and that they are so powerful and that their success may never stop. But the reality is, is since that they have turned away from God to their own ways, then the reality is, is that they're becoming like the very idols that they are starting to worship as leaders. Idols exist today just as much as the Old Testament, but they look like this, making a good thing, like being in leadership and responsible for people, into an ultimate thing. And when you do that, it becomes destructive, not only to those that you have responsibility over, but also to your own soul. Being in a position of responsibility in the marketplace, in public office, or in a church office, that is a good thing, especially when you know it's a calling of service under the righteous standards and guidance of God. But when a position or an office or a career becomes the ultimate thing, then you're willing to put others down to get ahead, you're willing to neglect your family and friendship for more hours at your career, and you're willing to tear relationships apart as long as it gets you up the ranks. I mean, that's a great description of politics, too. Political leaders, in order to get statuses of power, are willing to rip a society apart and put human beings against one another just to get ahead. You want to see the idolatry of politics in place, you see a nation that's starting to get ripped apart, and that's how you know the idol is present. Nothing wrong with being a politician. Nothing wrong with being a leader, a supervisor, a pastor, and other, other vocations and callings of responsibility, a parent a husband or a wife or a friend or a neighbor. But when we are in those positions, and those positions become now our identity, our source of truth and hope and meaning, and it replaces God, we not only start to destroy those that we have responsibility of, but we start to destroy our own souls. One of the ways that this verse is describing it is a very common biblical way to describe what idols do to the human soul. We become like the idols that we worship. And if it's an idol and not the living God, that means you become lifeless. Since idols don't actually have eyes, you become blind. Since they're in the dark because they have no will, you become a person who also walks in darkness. You can't make wise decisions anymore because you actually don't see the life and the truth from God's view. There's this last phrase at the end of verse 5. All the foundations of the earth are shaken because of this type of leadership. What does that mean? In other psalms, God is often praised for establishing a world, making it firm and secure. God, when he rules in his leadership, he puts things together in place for their purpose. But these earthly leaders, they're doing the opposite. They're making an absolute mess, and they are breaking apart what God has put together. 
I mean, you probably have had experiences like this. You ever had a real messy roommate and you're the clean one or maybe just had a bunch of kids that are living in your house that you have to clean up after? You go into a room, usually it's the kitchen, put it all back together, wash everything. You go into the room for a moment, turn around, and what happened to the kitchen? It's destroyed again. Everything that was in order is put back out of order. Countertops were wiped off. Now they're filled with filth. Right? That's kind of the contrast here. God, God's character, theologically, is the one he puts things in order. He restores. He cleans. But these leaders undo what he has done. They do the opposite of what God does. God restores and they destroy. That is the description of the unjust leadership here. Then verse 6 through 7 affirm the great privilege that these leaders are granted. God has given them the status, but then it's followed by that reality check of them not to think too highly of themselves. That's the phrase of, that's used, son of the most high, may mean that the leaders and rulers that are in view here are probably not just uh, secular leaders or rulers from other nations, but more likely these are the leaders and rulers over God's precious people. This is the unjust leadership of the king of Israel or a prophet or a priest that's more likely in view. And it can apply to any type of leadership or vocation or responsibilities, but what's really in view in this psalm are these leaders over God's people that God has given them this status, this, this, this calling, but they have taken it for granted corrupted it, and now he's given them the reality check that you think that your success is going to last forever. It is not. You and everything you built will fall, and you think you're a big deal? You're immortal. You're just going to die and face my judgment. And it reminds me again to go back to what I uh, led this sermon with, the reality of corrupt leadership in the church. And as the psalmist reminded us that it's a problem that the Old Testament and the New Testament also is very honest about. That often as you can celebrate humble and repented, broken leaders before God, there's also those that build themselves up in pride and success in a way that's wicked and unjust. It reminded me, just to get even more, be more specific, uh, I went to a seminar once with other church leaders. This was a while ago. And those leading this seminar, this was a very intriguing topic. It's probably why there was so many of us there that wanted to, to learn from this situation. But those that were leading the seminar were church leaders of a very, you know, at least numerically speaking, a successful church that just fell apart because of the immorality of the lead pastor. And what happened in this specific situation is that although under this person's leadership, the the ministry has seen a lot of success. The reason that his leadership fell apart is he uh, morally fell away through committing adultery against his wife with another church staff. That was the situation. And even when I wrote that in the sermon, I'm thinking about you guys, and you're probably thinking, like, man, like, that's just such an, oh, in, a, in a really unfortunate way, like an ordinary example. Like, man, like, that's one I've heard again and again and again and again. It's probably something that you almost would predict me giving you as an example. But what I want to do is not necessarily like talk about the details of that situation per se from that predictable angle. 
I want to talk about, I think then this is what really hit a lot of us church leaders as we were like listening to the seminar, is they, they were able to kind of stretch, stretch together a narrative of, of like how can this happen? And how can a person called to ministry get to a point of having a mindset that led to not only his own destruction and pastoral leadership, but also hurting so many people in the church, even causing some to lose their faith. And the seminar did a great job of stitching that together. Because it, it, this, this guy, it wasn't like he just got, you know, commissioned to leadership, you know, these, these leaders lay hands on him and call him into leadership, and he went from there and won one week is committed in adultery. There's a process that happens. There's an idol that takes hold over time that continues to increase the destructive level of what's going on in a human heart. This pastor, like anyone, uh, was passionate about the vocation, excited to serve the Lord in the ministry with a heart of service and gratitude to the Lord. That's how this pastor started off. He got to see the fruits of that ministry, he got to see people getting baptized and children growing up in the faith and the vulnerable in the neighborhood where they're serving, being protected and provided for. And it's just the gospel changing lives. He got to see that and witness that. But like anything, as I've been saying, ministry can become an idol. Ministry and ministry leadership is a good thing, but it becomes this destructive thing when it becomes ultimate and people in ministry leadership can get it just as greedy as a CEO of a large corporation. And for him and this pastor, the switch happened uh, uh, because he started to make ministry ultimate. He didn't see ministry any longer as the means to point people to who is ultimate, which is God. Ministry started to become the goal. The success of the ministry became the end for why he was laboring in it. And then you have that toxic uh, situation of the heart where ministry or anything else becomes ultimate, and then in his situation, fuse it with success, at least numerically speaking. The, the ministry was going bonkers. It's growing, people are getting baptized, lives are being changed. And as a result of that, because of a growing ministry, there's also more to do, more to imagine. He's getting stressed out about it and giving more and more of himself and feeding that idol now that he has in his heart about his ministry. And when he gets in that stressful, uh, growing, successful, idolatrous kind of situation, and that's all getting mixed together, he starts to have this inner dialogue with himself to start justifying things that are shady. He might say something like, you know what? I deserve to do some things because of how hard I work. Yeah, that ministry expense is a little lavish, but look at all the stress I'm taking on. Look at all the sacrifice my family is making for this ministry to be so successful. And, you know, he gets a little praise from others, and instead of just being humbled by it, he's like, you know what, I deserve that. I deserve that encouragement. Look at, look at all that I've done. Look at, look, at, look, at, look at the sacrifices I've been made. And he, instead of maybe deflecting, like, flattering comments, he expects them and needs them to thrive as a leader. Because look at all that's happening under my leadership. That's what the idol was starting to do in his soul. And so he got to the point of justifying those things. And one of the things that many of us church leaders were sitting there, we're trying to figure out, because that eventually led to justifying this romantic relationship outside of his marriage, 
you start to have a situation where he knows in his heart, based on the very scriptures that he preaches, that what he is doing is breaking God's standards and covenants. But then he does that during the weekday and then gets into the pulpit and preaches. And we just wanted to know how, how did he justify that? Like, how did he, how did he even have the confidence, right, to even step into the pulpit and one of the things they found out, the leaders, because when this all was discovered, they were unpacking these things with him. One of the things that they discovered is that he did go into the pulpit with guilt, knowing what he was doing was wrong. But then he went from that guilt and turned back to his idol to justify it, and it sounded something like this. Can what I, is what I am doing so wrong when everything around me is being so successful? Is, could God really be that mad at me for what I'm doing? Because look around, look at everything seems to be working and going well. And so he would commit these unjust things during the week and get in the pulpit and then justify his idolatry that way. That's what's happening. But verses 6 through 7 apply to this leader and any other leader, Old Testament and in a modern day, just as much. The point, again, of verses 6 through 7 is God calls people to areas of service and responsibility and leadership, that, and those callings are a good calling. But you need to make sure you do not start thinking too highly of yourself in that position and make the actual ministry or the vocation what your ultimate end is rather than God himself. Verse 7 says, you will fall. You're just immortal. You're going to die. You're going to face your judge. You, this is verse 6, the point of verse 6 is you are not a big deal. You might, and your idol might have, has have reminded you that you think you are, but you are just a man. You are just a person who is frail and will fall just like any other ruler. Your career, your life, it's not forever. And even if God doesn't judge you in this life, you will face him in the life to come. And that's the reality that the psalmist returns to in the last verse. The psalmist says, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. He remembers that God will not stay seated in the courtroom forever. At some point, the judge stands and declares his judgment on the living and the dead because everything belongs to God and he rules over all things. He's the ultimate end and he judges with righteousness and truth. It's a reminder that the psalmist in his lament turns back to because if he's reading the Old Testament like you and I do as well, there's so many examples of corrupt and wicked leadership not only just in our personal lives, but you can see that the scriptures are so honest about that. There's some great humble leaders in scriptures too, but there are such corrupt and wicked ones. It's a reality in this broken world that we have to face. But one of the things maybe practically in how this verse, uh, the psalm ends in the last verse, is he turns his eye back to the perfect leader and the perfect judge and say, these people may be corrupt, but that doesn't change who you are and how you lead and how you judge and how you rule. And Lord, you do have the power to deal with these people in your time. 
In the Apostles' Creed, to give you another angle on this, we confess that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And we also confess in that creed that through his crucifixion and resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins. And that's the other thing to remind ourselves here. It's not just leaders that are prone to idols. It's every single human heart that could turn to things that are good things and make them ultimate things. And the road out of bad leadership is the same gospel road that Jesus calls all of us to walk on that narrow road of repentance and forgiveness. You cannot get to the point of thinking that you're such a big deal, whether it's in your vocation or your need of forgiveness, that you do not need uh, the power of God to work through your humility to make you new. Humility is the path away from destruction of our idols and onto the path of restoration in Jesus Christ. And it's one of the only ways that it, it actually in our souls puts us into a, our, an appropriate view of ourselves and who we are and what we're called to do in service to the king. We are not a big deal. It's not about our glory. We do not have the power to serve, to, to forgive our own sins. We need the Lord. We need the Lord. He is better than us and whatever we can achieve. And the psalm gives that picture to make sure you remember that you're not a big deal, but God is. It actually reminds me, I don't know why this skit came to me, to, but I think about this to make sure that, um, as a way to illustrate for myself, never to think too highly of myself, because I think one of the ways you have to think about it is like from the, anything you boast about, I mean, even if you're like you're a, you know, a leader of a Fortune 500 company, like, and you think that's a big deal, you know how ridiculous that, view, that, that, that is to the, the king of heaven who owns all things? Ooh, Fortune 500 company, right? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It's like one of the verses. He, he owns everything, including your stupid little company, right? This is not a bit like, why would you even think that's a big deal? The only reason it's a big deal is because you're looking at things so horizontally. So the, think of this SNL skit that puts this, oh, well, Will Ferrell's in it, and maybe you've seen this before, and he's sitting at this dining room table with his daughter and his wife, and they're just chit-chatting and, like, clanking their silverware and all that type of thing, and everything's, like, so normal, but then it grows in, like intense. Like the you know the daughter is like questioning, uh, you know her dad, and you know you're not that big a deal. And then he gets upset about it, right? He's like, I, I work hard. I, I put in so many hours, and it always climaxes in the big thing that he he boasts about. He's like, and I drive a Dodge Stratus, and he just keeps coming back to that. He's like, he's like, you might not think I'm a big deal, but I drive a Dodge Stratus, and that's the point. That's why this gets so funny. Because it's a Dodge Stratus. What a stupid little thing to brag about. But do you know that from God's perspective, any boastful thing that even we might think from a humanly perspective is a big deal, that somebody has accomplished a lot, again, from, from the heavenly perspective, it's like boasting about driving a Dodge Stratus. Why? Who, do you, who do you think you are? What do you think you own? What riches do you think you have? What power and authority do you think you have that would be greater than the king himself? We all can fall, and we all need his grace. At the end of the day, we're all bragging about a Dodge Stratus at the end of the day from the perspective of the heavenly chambers of the one who rules all and owns all. And we desperately need his grace and restoration because our hearts, we're going to mess up the kitchen. The Lord needs to put it back together, including in our own souls.